You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Kristen Contino on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called A House Full of Windsor, and this is one of the most unique books that I've read this year. Um, and and it's definitely one of those stories that that the characters just linger with you when the when the book is done, um, which is you know what what we love. We, we want to escape into a book and then make new friends with the characters that uh, you know can journey through life with us. And A House Full of Windsor is one of those books. Uh, welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And that's so nice of you to say. Absolutely. Um, Kristen, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? So when I was a kid, I used to write short fiction stories all the time, and I would actually get in trouble in class for writing stories. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would write them with my friends sometime. I still have some of them, actually. I just found we were doing some renovations upstairs, and I have, you know, some memento boxes that were kind of shoved in the guest room, and I found a folder that had one of the stories from, I guess I was probably around eight or nine, and... So yeah, I've all it's kind of something always I've done. I don't have, I guess, a specific memory that stands out, but just, you know, being a kid and making up these stories. And I was obsessed with teenagers. I don't know why, because when you're eight or whatever, <laughs> being a teenager is so cool. And I have an eight-year-old son now, and he'll say things like, look, I look like a teenager. So it's funny. Um, but yeah, I would write these stories about, you know, these cool teenagers. I think, you know, Beverly Hills 90210 was out at the time and all that stuff. So that was what I thought was super cool and would write fiction about. And yeah, I guess it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen, were there... Um... Would you say that you grew up in a creative household? Was 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 that sort of thing encouraged? Um, uh, I, I love to hear stories of of youngsters who were encouraged by a, a parent or a, another family member. Maybe it was a teacher. Um, you know, because a, a writer's life can be kind of uh, stifling uh, at, at, and and lonely. And you know, a lot of times we'll will reach back and pull some of those early encouragements. And um, I, I, I love to hear how those things have carried on with people. Did, did you have any experience like that? So in terms of a creative household, I would say no. I mean, no one in my family, you know, works in any sort of creative industry per se, but I was definitely encouraged to read, you know, by my parents and my grandmother. We lived with my grandmother growing up and she would always read to us and, you know, she loved reading my stories and all of that. So my family definitely encouraged, you know, my passion for reading and for writing. Um, Absolutely. 
but I am the only one in my family who is crazy enough to be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, Kristen, when you, you know, you, from an early age, you knew that you were a storyteller and that you would, uh, you would be a writer in, in, in some capacity. Um, when you got out of high school and started, you know, finding your way into life and, um, did you did you pursue that uh, or did writing come come back around to you? So I did. Yes, I was a journalism major in college and I had always wanted to be a magazine writer, actually, like writing for People magazine or something like that was my dream. And somewhere along the way, I ended up getting interested in public relations as well. And this was also when Sex and the City was super popular. And, you know, Samantha and the whole New York, you know, PR thing was very glamorous. And I think I got a little bit caught up in that and wanting to be in that world. And I did some PR internships and I worked in New York and in Philly. And I ended up, instead of, you know, writing in that sense, doing more PR writing and pitching and being on the other side of the media. So I did that for about 10 years, actually. And then I got laid off in 2010. And all along, I had always kind of wanted to write a book. And I, you know, dibbled and dabbled in that for fun. But I I hadn't written very much. I mean, maybe a couple of chapters in my early 20s. And, you know, when I lost my job, I really had no excuse not to you know, finish this book that I had been working on here and there. So I actually sat down and, you know, finished my first novel at that time. But yeah, I, I mean, it. so yes and no, like I did pursue it, but then it came back to me. Yeah. I, I love to ask people who have uh, spent time in journalism or studied journalism, um, what kind of tools do you feel like that you picked up along the way that journalism uh, taught you or that you gathered in in working in that industry that now helps you as a fiction writer? Um, you, you know, you think about journalism and fiction writing being on, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. Yes. Um, but but I think there are tools that that you pick up along the way that help you to. I don't know, um, study characters, uh, things that, that journalists are, are trained to notice that that then help you as a fiction writer. Sure. So I, I still work in journalism now. I am a chief reporter for a royalty website called Royal Central. And so I do both. And I think it's interesting because in terms of journalism, you're always kind of asking questions and looking for more and looking to you know, research. So I think the research tools especially have helped me in terms of fiction, um, you know, researching a story either way or fiction or nonfiction takes some time. And, you know, when you're studying journalism, you're taught to, you know, dig deeper and ask questions and how to, you know, find more. So I think that's certainly helpful. What was your uh, earliest fascination with the with the royal family and this idea of royalty? Uh, you know, it's something that as Americans and, and we're we're literally recording this right after the 4th of July. Um, and so, you know, there, there are definitely interesting feelings um, about uh, the royal family and, and our lineage as Americans and, and you know, how we're still connected, uh, you know, to that sort of recently ancient past. Um, but what was it that that sparked your interest in in this 
something that we don't really have in America. So growing up, my mom was really interested in Princess Diana. And so that was something that I, you know, grew up around, uh, you know, Princess Diana things in the house, you read the magazines, all that stuff. So I definitely looked up to her as a role model, you know, when I was young in terms of fashion or just being, you know, interesting, glamorous, exciting. And when I studied abroad in London, I remember, um, you know, Prince Charles, one of my friends saw Prince Charles when they were out and about and I was so jealous. But I didn't really become super interested uh, myself in the royal family in terms of, you know, following them as closely as I do now when until probably uh, William and Kate got engaged and, you know, watching the wedding and all of that. And I think a lot of people, you know, around my age would say the same thing that they're wedding either, you know, kind of reignited their interest in the royal family or maybe started a new one. And yeah, ever since then, I think it's everywhere in the news, everywhere you turn. And they've definitely, you know, reignited some interest there. Your your first book that you published, The Legacy of Us, um, and, and you told me a, a minute ago about, you know, being laid off and, and you know, kind of being um, – faced with the the perfect opportunity to to work on something that you had been passionate about for a while was the legacy of us the story that was in your mind uh when you started working on that uh or you know did this come later how did how did that that book come about it was although i ended up changing it quite a bit so i was working on a story that was about people who were my age who were kind of in this period where you just graduate from college and you're feeling a little bit lost, you know, in terms of job or relationships and not sure, you know, what your path is going to be. And I had written these characters, but I didn't really have, I wasn't really sure where it was going to go other than, you know, wanting to explore this time period in your life. And then I had the idea actually, so after I had got laid off. Um, my husband's grandmother passed away just not long before that. And we had, you know, gone through some things in the house and she had this cameo necklace and a pin, like a series of jewelry with cameos and they're from Italy. And, you know, they were quite old, but we didn't know anything about them. And we were just kind of chatting about it the one day. And I thought, you know, that would be an interesting story of kind of like how someone had inherited this piece, but following the piece itself through generations, you know, over a hundred years or whatever the case might be, um, and a family and like the different stories that could follow it. And then suddenly I was like, I can take the characters I have now, but integrate them into this story. So the characters from the story I was already working on showed up in the legacy of us. And I just kind of twisted that to also add like two other points of view that were historical. So it was funny how that worked out because it's totally not the story I intended to write. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid, 
concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and 3 acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000 word book, it's about two cards per chapter roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. PlotPins.com Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. But isn't that great when that happens? Like when, yeah. when the story just kind of takes a life of its own? Yeah, it was it was fun because I had always had these characters kind of with me and then I got to still use them, but in a different way. So from the legacy of us, um, you you have always been an Anglophile, like you like you've told us about, and um, have loved the the royal family and and following uh, along with that. Um, when did you decide to write a story that would kind of encapsulate that? So I was watching an episode of Hoarders, as one does on you know a boring Sunday or whatever it was, <laughs> and this woman. She had a daughter and the daughter was speaking about how her mother's hoarding had really impacted her life and her job, her relationships, you know, all these different things. And I said, that's a really interesting idea for a book of how, you know, the children of someone who is a hoarder, like how would this impact them? And I started thinking about it and I didn't want to write a book about you know someone with 
rotting animals or, you know, gross stuff in their house. Right. What, you know, nobody wants to read about that. But I thought, what if it was some sort of quirky and interesting collection she had? And immediately what came to mind was the royal family. So um, Debbie, one of the main characters in the book, is a compulsive hoarder. But she calls herself kind of an organized hoarder where she is obsessed with the royal family and has accumulated all these things in her home um, to the point where it's not really safe for her to live there anymore. Other than the the television show that you were watching, what did you do to kind of get inside the head of a hoarder? So I read a few really interesting nonfiction books um, about kind of the psychology of hoarders. And funnily enough, one of them is called Stuff, which is the name of the reality show in my book. I had already called it that. So I thought this is a sign. This is a good book to read. <laughs> uh, it's fascinating. I mean, if you're at all interested in kind of the mindset of how people end up this way, um, it's a great book. I definitely recommend it. And there was another book I read, which was a memoir, and I'm blanking on the title right now, but it was about uh, the daughter of a hoarder and just kind of her life and, you know, living in that type of house and how she dealt with her mother. So that was a good resource as well. And I actually have a friend whose mother is a compulsive hoarder. So I spoke to her a bit about that and she was super helpful. Did um, as someone who uh, who follows the royals and 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 likes to to keep up with that and, and is you know a bit of an expert, um, how fun was it to uh, bring that uh, aspect into the story and to to in 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 a little bit of a way to kind of poke fun at at kind of the way we obsess over things. It was really fun. I mean, I definitely enjoyed that. And, you know, of course, me bringing that aspect into the story was kind of my way to, you know, have fun with it. And a lot of my friends, you know, who are royal watchers, um, I had some of them read early copies and they really enjoyed that part because I think it may be a bit deceiving that, you know, the cover is very British and royal and there's, you know, Union Jacks and everything all over it. So I think people might think automatically, well, this is about the royal family or it's, you know, super British. And it is, but it isn't because it's really at the heart of family story and kind of how this family comes together to overcome these problems. But it's kind of set, you know, aside the story of, you know, the woman being obsessed with the royal family and certainly plays a big part, but it's more background than, you know, not. Well, this book is is definitely, uh, I would say, a relationship book, but not in the sense that that most relationship books are. Um, this is a, a family relationship. And um, how how difficult was it for you to to really draw out the characters of Sarah and 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 her mother, Debbie? And um, kind of how did you shift perspectives um, so that you could bring us the story from from different angles and 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 be fair to the characters? So I think there's a little bit of me in both of them too, which maybe made it easier in that sense. But I always write from multiple perspectives. You know, The Legacy of Us was three POVs. This is two. So that's the way I'm used to writing. And it just, I guess my brain works well that way, you know, switching back and forth. I think it makes it a little bit more fun for me to kind of have a break to, you know, of writing from one point of view, then I can go back to another. And it's 
I mean, it's not like writing a different book, but it's, you know, it's totally different. And I think it's fun in that sense to change gears and change mindset. Um, But yeah, I wanted them to be quite different in terms of personality and really draw on the fact that Sarah was totally trying to be the opposite of her mother in, you know, almost, I mean, not every way, but many ways, um, just because of her experience growing up the way she did. So I thought, you know, well, what would you do if you had a mother like that? You would either become like her or you would become the complete opposite of her. So I decided to go on that path which I think is a little bit more interesting than having two people who are, you know, stuck in the same position. Sure. Um, when Debbie was younger, she uh, was in England and, and became pregnant with, uh, um, with Sarah. And, um, the, you know, a, as the story unfolds, we, we really get the sense that there's more of a connection there than is on the surface. Um, how fun was it to kind of play with the 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 ideas of uh, you know emotions that are not obvious but kind of seeing them manifest through people's behaviors yeah i find that super interesting and i want it to tie in debbie's um you know how she ends up becoming a compulsive hoarder with her you know a the breakdown of her marriage but B, also her interest in the royal family and how the two of them kind of come together. And, you know, the breakdown of her marriage isn't necessarily entirely the fault of her being obsessed with Princess Diana, but part of it is. And I think it's interesting when you can see like little things that build up throughout the story to end, you know, end up how she is in the end. And you get, you know, little clues as it goes along but also you know debbie being in england i also studied abroad in london and actually this school where debbie goes is the school where i went which is my little easter egg in there but i kind of wanted to play with the idea of you know what if you never left because a lot of my friends and you know myself included you know it was hard to leave when you're moving to another country and you know you're becoming used to it and having so much fun and embracing the culture and then abruptly it comes to an end and that's kind of something i wanted to go along with with debbie and then explore well what happens if you stay Kristen, in the writer community we love to put people in one of two camps either um either someone is a pantser and writes by the seat of their pants and just discovers the story as they're writing and then we like to think of the other camp as being plotters or people that that really work on where the story's going and and have a map uh before the writing ever begins and then they they follow the map that they've drawn out which camp do you fall in uh if you uh you know abide by those uh the idea that there's only two ways to do it so i would say i'm a pantser but for the book i'm working on now i actually wrote an outline for the first time in my life although it's i've definitely deviated from it so i would still say i'm a pantser um the house full of windsor i mean the legacy of us i did zero nothing i just sat down and wrote it um there was no prep involved in that i there was a little more with the house full of windsor just in terms of the research aspect and i knew you know generally what was going to happen but i don't 
like sit there and write detailed character profiles and all of these things and on a whiteboard and like I pretty much just start writing. So I would say pantser, but like with a little bit of maybe additional work. Um. When you begin to work on a book, what comes first? Is it uh, is it a, a plot point? Um, is it a setting, or is it a specific character that then, you know, finds her way into, um, you know, some problem that you have to write them out of? How, how, what is that that first inkling of the story? What does it look like for you? So for me, it's always a plot point, um, and it's usually some kind of high concept. Thing, like an etiquette expert's mother is a hoarder and they end up on a reality show. Um, that was kind of what was in my head for a house full of Windsor. So for, yeah, definitely plot. Gotcha. Um, so Kristen, can you tell us anything about the book that you're working on now? Uh, like after, you know, writing the first book and now a house full of Windsor, do, do you feel like you're settling into um, a vein that, that, you know, that, that someone could, could pick up a book and say, oh, this is a Kristen Contino book. Like, do, do you feel like that you're, um, that, that you're settling into a, a genre of your own? It's an interesting question because I feel like yes and no, um, with the legacy of us, that was also very much, I think like a household Windsor, even though it was super different, a family relationship book, well, also it had, you know, more romantic elements than Houseful of Windsor does. But, you know, exploring, you know, complicated relationships between mothers and daughters and sisters and whatnot. And the book I'm working on now is a little bit different. I would say it's probably closer to a contemporary romance than women's fiction, which my first two books are, although it's definitely crossover. But it it also has an Anglophile kind of bent to it. And I don't want to say a whole lot about it because I'm not quite, <laughs> you know, there yet. But sure. I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I'm researching a lot about um, stately homes and these country houses in the UK, which is something I'm super interested in to begin with. And I drag my family all over to these places when we're on vacation. So that has been fun for me. Although, unfortunately, you know, not traveling the past uh, you know, year and a half has put yeah, a damper yeah. on the research, but I'm moving along. So I'm happy with that. With two books published, working on your third, um, and I know that you said that you um approach the the pre-writing a little different for the new book with with an outline um how else have you seen your creative process change or uh settle into things that 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 seem to fit you better as a creative person Hmm. yeah like with the outline i think for this book that was helpful just for me to get the idea out there and i think i wrote i don't know it was like a five page or whatever outline that I wrote. Um, actually, I think it wasn't even really an outline. It was a synopsis. People hate writing a synopsis, but I actually am good at it. And I think it's easy. So I'm a weirdo in that sense. <laughs> um, so I actually wrote the synopsis. I'm calling it an outline. It's really not. It was a synopsis. Um, and that really helped me get this idea out on the page because I was reading a Hello magazine about this you know, aristocratic family in the UK, and it sparked an idea. And so I just took out my computer and randomly started writing a synopsis like a crazy person in, you know, like a half hour or whatever. 
And I was like, oh, I have an idea for a new book, which was different for me because I've you know, never done that. But I think things like that help me now just kind of wrap my head around it. And whether or not I follow that to a T is a different story, but it is definitely useful. Um, I think in the past I would get stuck because, you know, I was just sitting there flying by the seat of my pants completely. And my brain also does work that way in the sense where like the characters just tell me what's going on and I kind of go for the ride. Um, But it's also, you know, in terms of productivity, maybe a little bit better to have more of a, you know, firm grasp on the idea before starting. So I think that has helped with this one. You um, you touched on this already but, um, in your answer there, but but how bound do you feel to that synopsis that you write? Do you, do you feel like if you start deviating from that, that you're getting away from the core of the story or does the synopsis just act as a, a springboard to to kind of let you know kind of where the story is? Yeah, it's definitely a springboard. Um, I veer off in different directions and that's fine um, because I know if I have an idea that I think is going to work, that's, you know, better than being like bound to this document, which, you know, doesn't really mean anything. I think it's different too if you have if you're under contract and your publisher is, you know, expecting or has approved, you know, X, Y, Z, I'm not under contract for this book. So I have a lot more freedom. So that's nice. And I can just kind of go where I want it to. When you're hearing this episode, A House Full of Windsor is available everywhere. Now uh, you can grab it in Kindle edition or paperback. Um, we're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode where people can click on it, buy it from Amazon, or uh, if your local bookstore has opened back up, please go visit your local bookstore and support uh, local businesses for sure. Uh, Kristen, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? So I'm most active on Instagram, and I am at Royally Kristen C. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N. C and uh, my website is kristencontino.com k r i s t i n c o n t i n o Excellent. We'll put links to those places as well to make it easy for people to find you. Kristen, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade. Forgotten Ruin, Book 2, by Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter 1. The Army of the Dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51. A one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons. 
which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous PFC Kennedy. But the Rangers, just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us? Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there and I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some. Rotting boots. Helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts. Beads and charms dangling from bone wrists. Enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be. 
where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.